like you to turn to the book of Jonah. Our passage for today is chapter 1, verse 17, through chapter 2, verse 10. Let me read this passage. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The word of God, brothers and sisters. Two weeks ago, started a new series in Jonah titled The Angry Prophet. We looked at chapter 1, but we didn't cover verse 17. I wanted to leave the surprise ending for you because I know we're all holding in suspense on what happens after they throw him off the ship. Jonah shows us in chapter 1 that you can never outrun God. Not only can you not outrun God, you cannot outrun God's grace. So, See, Jonah has been sent to prophesy over Nineveh. And the problem is Nineveh is where the bad guys are. Jonah doesn't like the Ninevites. They're, yeah, the, Nineveh is the, the capital area around the, uh, the region, the capital of Assyria, and they've been enemies with Israel for quite some time. So Jonah doesn't want to go, so he flees, and he winds up endangering a ship and its crew, the ship that he's fleeing on. Ultimately, Jonah does the right thing, he goes and he tells the crew, God's not mad at you. It's me that he's after. This is why this storm is upon you. And he advises them to throw him overboard, which they, they reluctantly do. They, they try to get away from him. They can't. But as they toss him in the sea, the sailors see something about God. They see him moving through Jonah's life, through their lives, and they acknowledge God and begin to worship him. The sailors receive grace. They become believers. And in a very real way, Jonah received grace as well. What he earned was punishment and condemnation. What he earned was judgment for disobeying God. But at least until he went into the water, he was a recipient of God's grace. God spared him. Now, this morning we're going to see what happens uh, to Jonah as he tumbles into that raging sea. And you notice that that's become a theme of Jonah's book. Every time we see him, he's, he's moving further and further down further and further away from God. So, before we get to that, let me, let me challenge you with this. And I, I just want to imprint this on your mind. It's on your handouts. But bear this in mind. Until we realize how hopeless we are, 
we will neither fully understand nor appreciate the grace of God until we realize what a hopeless situation we're in, we will neither fully understand nor fully appreciate the grace of God. Now, I want to show you this is true right here in our passage today. Our sermon for this morning is The Whale. Uh, this is part two of our ongoing series, uh, Jonah the Angry Prophet. So, our passage will demonstrate to us four blessings that Jonah receives during this scenario here. Uh, as he's thrown into the sea. Now, they're not going to seem like blessings at first. Frequently, God's blessings don't seem like much of a blessing to us. But since we know uh, that everything that happens to us is for our good and for his glory, we're going to be able to see Jonah's situation as a blessing. So we'll see that even in the harshest moments of this scenario, that there's blessing that rises to the surface. So here here are the, the four blessings. Number one, Jonah's dilemma. Uh, that's in chapter 1, verse 17. Number 2, Jonah's despair. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Number 3, blessing. Jonah's dedication. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. And Jonah's, Jonah's deliverance, the fourth blessing, is in verse 10 of chapter 2. So let's look at the first blessing, Jonah's dilemma. Uh, throughout the first 16 verses of chapter 1, we saw this dazzling display of hubris on behalf of Jonah. He's full of himself. Uh, He tried to run from what God wanted him to do, maybe thought he'd be able to do it. Uh, But we also saw during that chapter an even more dazzling display of God's sovereignty. Now, that's worth some careful consideration. Verse 4 of chapter 1 tells us that God sent this great wind upon the sea and stirred the sea up. God created the storm that swamped the boat. Now, he not only created the storm, but he intensified the storm. He made it worse and worse and worse. As they they kept on trying to get away from the storm, as Jonah kept on trying to get away from God, the fury of the storm intensified. Now, we see that in verse 11, but then we see he intensified it again in verse 13. And just to demonstrate that God has complete control over everything, he causes the storm to suddenly cease in verse 15 after they throw him overboard. Now, how many of you have been out on the water when it's been stormy? Raise your hand. Okay, it takes quite a bit of time for that water to settle down, doesn't it? I mean, the storm will pass, the sun will come up, and the waves will still have white caps on it. God settles the Mediterranean Sea immediately. It defies everything, every physical characteristic we know about water. So God is moving miraculously throughout this entire scenario. God used the storm, and this is what we need to see, to bring the sailors towards him, to bring the sailors close to him. They worshiped him. They sacrificed him in verse 16. We need to remember that. It'll show up again later. So for the sailors' sake, even though the storm was terrifying, it turned out to be a blessing. God blessed him through it. Now, for Jonah, Jonah received the same type of blessing, but his problems aren't over yet. As a matter of fact, they're about to get significantly worse. Or are they? Are they going to get worse, or are they going to get better? Jonah 1.17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, at first... That sounds pretty bad. I don't want to be swallowed up by a fish. 
Jonah's being thrown into a violent sea. Catch this, what's happening. Uh, he has absolutely no chance of survival. Not only does he have no chance of survival, this is a terrifying prospect for one of, one of the Jews, for, for the Hebrews. They're not really well acquainted with the water. They have a healthy fear of the seas. Uh, sometimes that bordered on superstition. They were nomads. They were more comfortable in the sands of Egypt and the arid plateau of the Negev than they were in the water. And they were neither noted sailors nor were they very good swimmers. They just didn't have the opportunity to do it very often. But look at this. The Lord, as, as Jonah is headed into the water, the Lord appointed a great fish. Rather than letting Jonah drown, God sends this huge fish. Now, by the way, it's probably not a whale. Um, we don't really know. I know, I know the title of the sermon is the whale, but I didn't want to call the sermon the great fish, so I called it the whale. Uh, but the truth is that we don't know what kind of fish it is. All we really know about it is that it's really big. And the fish swallows Jonah. Now, I think the author chose that word very carefully because what the author did not say is that the fish ate Jonah. He didn't eat him. He swallows him. And Jonah stays in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, there are a good number of people that will take this short passage right here and try to make some sense out of it. They'll, they'll look at it and try to reason how Jonah, how he got down into the belly of the fish and, and, and what happened to him in there. There's all sorts of manner of rationalizing this. Um, the, uh, some people want to know what Jonah looked like after spending three days in the stomach acid of a fish. There's speculation as to what the great fish is. I heard one teacher say, well, obviously what happened was Jonah swam ashore and walked to an inn called the Great Fish and stayed there for three days while he was considering what God was doing to him. People try to explain this, but I've got to tell you something. There's really no explanation for it. Either we receive what it says or we don't. And all the conjecture about what happened to Jonah, how he got down there, what happened during the three days, how he got out, where he got out, and everything, really misses the point. Jonah was trying to avoid God's will. He thought he could get far enough and go fast enough to get out of doing what God wanted him to do. He thought maybe he could find some out-of-the-way corner in some remote place in the world where maybe God wouldn't think about looking for him. Except Jonah finds himself in the middle of this incredible display of God's sovereignty. Isn't that where he is? God just showed Jonah his omniscience. God knew exactly where Jonah was every step of the way. He put on an exhibit of his sovereign control over the weather. He sent the wind and stirred up the ocean just to get Jonah's attention. God just demonstrated to the sailors that he's sovereign over the seas. He calmed the storm. He calmed the seas as well. The sailors got it. They understood. They took one look at what was going on around them, and when Jonah tells them, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the God of the, the land and the sea, they get it right away, and they begin to worship and sacrifice to God. But Jonah, Jonah is still learning. Jonah is still in God's classroom. Have you ever been there? 
Have you ever sat in God's classroom? You know, sometimes it can be really fascinating. Sometimes it can be really difficult. Sometimes you're sitting there in that little desk they give you, you know, with a little inkwell in it, and you're sweating. <laughs> That's where Jonah is right now. He realizes that God wants to teach him something. It's a little awkward moment for Jonah. God not only sent the fish, but he showed Jonah that he's not just the God of the air, not just the God of the sea, but he's a God of all living creatures. So he not only sends the fish, listen to this, he sustains Jonah in the fish. Explain it any way you like. Try and figure it out science-wise, biologically-wise. I'm going with God performing a miracle here. He sends a a fish big enough to swallow Jonah, and we've got a God big enough to be sovereign over both Jonah and the fish. Amen? Amen? So let me ask you something. So looking at Jonah's situation, if, if you thought for one minute that you could get away from what God wanted you to do, if you could run far enough and fast enough to get away from what he wanted to do, and any of this stuff that happened to Jonah happened to you, do you think it might make you stop and consider what God was doing? Do you think that three days in the belly of a fish might give you the chance to reevaluate your plans for going forward and wonder whether or not you were going in the right direction? That's Jonah's dilemma. What, what is he going to do now? There he is. What's he going to do now? Do you see, do you see though, how the storm and the fish, although they create a big problem, a big obstacle, and a terrifying problem for Jonah, they're also a blessing for Jonah. Without them, Jonah would be running scared the rest of his life. He'd be looking over his shoulder everywhere he went. Is God going to find me? Is today today? I know, he knows, I know he's everywhere. I know he knows everything. Does he know I'm here? So he'd be living in apprehension the rest of his life. Now he's forced to confront his dilemma. He's forced to to stare it in the eye and to deal with it. The problem he's got is he's helpless. He is helpless. He knows he's got the problem. He knows God's making him face it, but he's helpless. Jonah is absolutely powerless to do anything about his situation. He's been swallowed by a large fish. Even if he could somehow crawl up the mouth of that fish and get out, where would he be? At the bottom of the ocean. The ocean that he was initially thrown into that we're going to find out that he thought he was going to die in. Until something supernatural happens, or if something supernatural doesn't happen, Jonah's going to die there. So what will he do now? Well, we know one thing. He's got three days and three nights to think about it. Three days alone in the belly of a fish. Three days to try and figure out all the steps he took that landed him there in the belly of the fish. Three days of not knowing what will happen next. You know, any minute that fish could have opened up its mouth and swallowed uh, a larger fish than Jonah that would come in and eat him. Any minute the fish could open its mouth and fill itself with water and Jonah could drown. Three days of not knowing what's going to happen. What's Jonah going to do? What would a godly man do? Sometimes, sometimes it's better to slow down. Sometimes it's better to to pause rather than act on our impulses. 
Sometimes it's better to wait until we act on our emotions and let our emotions take over and cause us to do something rash. Isn't that what Jonah did? Isn't that exactly what he did? He heard what God wanted him to do. He didn't like it, and he ran. He just bolted. What will Jonah do with his three days? Well, we don't have to look very far to find out. It's in the next six verses where we see Jonah's despair. The second blessing, this sounds a little odd, but the second blessing is Jonah's despair. Jonah did the only thing that he could do, the only thing that a godly person could do. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. Jonah prayed. Brothers and sisters, it's the only appropriate response when we're sinking. It's the only appropriate response when we're hopeless to pray. And the prayer that Jonah prays, it's it's beautiful, it's complex. Some of it's a little hard to translate. We'll take a look at it. There are a lot of words and phrases that are very similar to words and phrases that we see in the Psalms. And i got to tell you, the biblical scholars are uh, not in agreement over whether or not Jonah is trying to quote Psalms or whether or not he's plagiarized them or or what's going on there. But i got to tell you what I think. I think. I think that Jonah is so desperate that he, he, in a panic, he prays what he remembers. He reprays what he remembers reading in his scriptures. His words may, may not be exactly as they were written in the Psalms, but Jonah remembers their intent. Jonah remembers their tone, remembers their theme. And I got to tell you, a man in trouble is not necessarily as concerned with accuracy as he is with pouring his heart out to God. Have you ever been in that type of position? I can't remember the verse, but there's some, there's some scripture that tells me, Lord, that you mean this for my good, and I, I pray that you show me what the good is. I'm pretty sure that God is less concerned with our accuracy in quoting scripture as he is with the heart that desires to quote it. I don't think God grades on that curve. Whatever is going on in this prayer, whatever Jonah is doing in his prayer, the Holy Spirit saw fit to quote Jonah. So the scripture we're reading is inspired. It's accurate enough for the Spirit of God. I guess it should be accurate enough for us. Amen? So look at what comes pouring out of Jonah in this this moment of despair, in in this moment of desperation. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, this probably is a reference to an initial prayer that Jonah prayed when he got into the belly of the fish, a desperate cry for help. Perhaps Jonah is looking for some assurance that he's not been abandoned because of his disobedience. Whatever the first prayer was, the important thing is God heard it. God is listening to him somehow gave Jonah the comfort of knowing that he's there. He's with him. He hears what's going on. He's still with Jonah. He's listening. Now, that must have been an encouragement at a time when Jonah needed encouragement. I believe the Spirit will encourage us when we need encouragement. Um, It it must have been a time when Jonah knew better than to question what was going on. I mean, after all, God had promised to be with his people to never leave him, to never forsake him. Jonah would have known that. Uh, But Jonah had done something dishonorable. Jonah had done something rebellious. He had offended God. And God gave Jonah the assurance that Jonah needed. And now it's up 
to Jonah to act upon it. God gives him assurance. Jonah needs to act upon that assurance, not wallow in his questions. And Jonah does exactly that. He acts on it. His first prayer after knowing God hears is one of his first prayer after realizing that God is listening to him is one of confession, brothers and sisters. He confesses. In verse 3, he admits that he knows God's hand is in his dilemma. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Now this is a mature, godly man praying a godly prayer. He's not blaming the sailors. He's not blaming the storm. He's not complaining. He's not feeling victimized. He's bearing the responsibility for his actions. We'll see that as we go through the prayer. Jonah may have his faults, but right here, right now, in this moment, he is confessing that God has brought this upon him, and he's not saying that God has brought it upon him unjustly. Look at verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Jonah is rightly concerned that his behavior has ruptured the relationship that he has with God. He, keep in mind that Jonah's a prophet. He's a man who's charged with, with purveying God's word, with proclaiming God's word, and, and he's concerned that he's cut himself off from the God that he's worshipped all of his life. Now, the second half of the verse is one of those phrases that's kind of difficult to translate. The ESV that we're reading gets the literal translation right. Those are the words. But it's hard to convey the thought behind this comment on the temple. Uh, it really is more of a question, more of a lament. Jonah is worried that he may never see the temple again. The man is distraught. He's beside himself. He is pleading with God. He's confessing his sin. And verse 5 and, and 6 describe Jonah's near-death experience. This is why he's so distraught. He almost died. They also continue to describe this tumbling downward theme that we see with Jonah only now. It's not just a metaphor. It's the reality of the situation Jonah's in. Jonah was in crashing waves. He was being drawn down by the water. He was drowning when God intervened and caused this fish to swallow him, being in the belly of the fish, listen, being in the belly of the fish was for Jonah salvation. It was salvation. Far better than being at the bottom of the ocean. And it came by the sovereign hand of God at exactly the time that Jonah was unable to save himself. So, Jonah's in the fish, he's inside the fish, and he is called out to God, and he's been assured that God heard Jonah, heard his confession. You would think that would be enough, but after all that, Jonah's still in the fish. He's still stuck in the belly of the fish. And so now we see Jonah's despair. But I hope you also see the blessing that occurs while Jonah is in this state of despair. Jonah has repented. Prior to being in the belly of the fish, he was trying to run away from God. Now he's trying to be closer to God. His trouble has impacted his heart to such an extent that it turned him towards God. The blessing is that Jonah is now pursuing God instead of running away from him. Well, that's a good blessing. But what happens next? 
Repentance is fine, but we all know, and we're actually going to see in the next couple chapters, that repentance can be short-lived. Some profession of faith, some commitment of faith has to come along with the repentance. Jonah is a good and godly man. His heart has been broken. Uh, His gratitude for God's grace is beginning to well up inside of him. And in the middle of all that, he makes a vow. He makes a promise. We hear it in our third blessing, Jonah's dedication in verses 7 through 9. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Here we hear, when my life is fading away, Jonah is dying. His last thoughts as he is about to die are of the Lord. Now you've got to get this picture here. Jonah thought this was it. He was going down. His situation was hopeless. Death was inevitable. And at that moment, Jonah not only thinks of God, he prays. Perhaps with his dying breath, he prays to God. He realizes that God is his only hope. And maybe in that moment, Jonah also realizes that the solution to all the problems in life The answer to all of his struggles is not to hide from God, but to run to him, to call out to him, to call from the depths of his heart, to throw his last breath heavenward, and to trust God with that last breath. It's an incredible moment. He says as much to us in verse 8, Another verse that has some challenges in translating. Uh, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I like the NIV a little bit better on this. It says those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But even the NIV is not real clear how this fits in with the flow of the passage. So I'm going to give you the Kavakis paraphrase on this one. I think this is the author's intent to say, Those who worship other gods have no hope in a time like this. They've turned away from their only hope. The only hope they can ever have is in God. Jonah ends his prayer on a note of praise and worship. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And this denotes continued action. Sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah acknowledges that God has snatched him from the brink of death, brought him back from the edge. And then, just like the sailors in chapter 1, verse 16, he wants to make a sacrifice of thanks to God. He makes his vow to do it, and to do it continuously. For the rest of my life, I'm going to sacrifice to you, Father, and worship you. Jonah's last utterance in his prayer makes the most profound statement that we ever hear in the Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah knows that he's unable to save himself. He knows how close to death he came. He's acutely aware of how helpless he was when he was in the water. And what comes flowing out of Jonah is praise and thanks for saving him. That's the third blessing. That's Jonah's dedication, that praise and thanks. 
and restored and revitalized relationship with his Father in heaven, initiated by God for God's glory and for Jonah's salvation. Jonah gets it. Here's our fourth blessing. Jonah's deliverance. It's God's response to Jonah's contrite heart and his sincere, sincere profession of faith. And we see that in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, I've got to be honest with you. When I read that, that didn't sound like much of a blessing to me, being thrown up by a fish. But I think it did to Jonah. I think it was far preferable for Jonah to be out on dry land than it was to be in the belly of that fish. I'm confident that Jonah was glad and thankful for any manner that God chose to eject him from that fish with. Amen? So those, those are our four blessings. Jonah's dilemma, Jonah's despair, Jonah's dedication, and Jonah's deliverance. What, what do we do with this? You know, what, what, what do you have to learn? Well, you know, well, for one thing, right, right there again, you know, there's a great surface lesson right there. Very clear tie to the gospel. Jonah's in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. Jesus in the tomb three days and three nights. Jesus thinks it's important enough that he quotes it in Matthew chapter 16, chapter 12. And again, we see it in Luke. So there's the obvious tie-in to being brought back from death and, and that lesson. I like that. But I, I want to go a little bit deeper. You know, we saw that. We also see God's sovereignty over all creation. He commanded the weather, the sea, and the fish. But he also commands salvation. We need to think about this for a second. It belongs to him. Jonah had no part in his salvation. Okay, now, wait, wait. tell me about your salvation experience. I can tell you about God's salvation experience. I can't tell you about my salvation. It's not my salvation. Salvation belongs to him. Okay. Now, I know. I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, but he cried out. He cried out. So he, he did have some part in it. Let me tell you something. You take a look at the text. Jonah didn't cry out until he was already in the belly of the whale. Uh, the big fish. Jonah didn't cry out until he was already saved. Just let that roll around inside you for a few minutes. Jonah's salvation was a sovereign act of God. When the sailors threw him from the boat, Jonah had no choice but to fall into the sea. And Jonah, I, I mean, God plucked him from death. God dragged him from the edge of death. And Jonah, who had been pushing against God, look what happened to him. He was transformed. He was transformed as this guy that's running away, offended by what God asked him to do, into a humble, grateful man. He appreciated the God, grace of God, but the lesson is he didn't appreciate, he didn't fully appreciate the grace of God until he was absolutely helpless and dependent upon God for his salvation. Now, isn't that where we started just a little while ago? Perhaps that's the big lesson today. Until we realize how hope, helpless we are, we will neither fully understand nor fully appreciate the grace of God. Isn't that what happened to Jonah? 
He goes through this transformation because now he realizes how much he's totally dependent upon God. Jonah had to learn that his life was totally in God's hands. Jonah had to learn that the relationship that he had with God was totally dependent upon God. Jonah had to learn to trust in God implicitly, not just to save him from drowning, but to sustain him in the belly of the fish. It was a miracle that Jonah didn't die in there. Jonah didn't fully appreciate God's grace until he, listen, he didn't fully appreciate God's grace until he had nothing else to cling to. His only hope was in the grace of God. There was no way out of his dilemma. There was no way for him to save himself. Are we like Jonah? I've had to go through this process. Am I like Jonah? Here, here, you know, that's a good question. But here's a question that should be on our hearts this morning. I mean, we look at this situation and we see how dreadful it is. But ask yourself this question. How, how big a fish are you in right now? Think about it. How big a fish are you in? How'd you get there? Now, those, those are the questions Jonah had to answer. There are a few more questions we need to consider if we start going down that path. Maybe some of you are not in a fish at all. It's okay. If you're not stuck in the belly of a fish, it's all right. But if you are, how far down is God going to have to drag you before you realize he's your only hope? How hard are you going to work to get away from what God wants you to do until you realize you can't? When will you come to that point of surrender that Jonah came to? before you realize how much you need him. How much am I, how much am I like Jonah? Huh. Am I fully aware of how when I was helpless, when I was dead in my sin, how God plucked me out of that deep, dark grave, how he saved me, and how he now sustains me? Am I fully aware of how much I need him right now? You and I will have the same struggle that Jonah had if we don't realize our complete inability to rescue ourselves. We don't recognize our complete inability to sustain ourselves. Grace is so easy to take for granted. It's so easy to misconstrue God's grace. So easy to believe that God grants it to us because we have in some way attracted his attention. Or we have in some way been more intelligent than the guy next to me. I was able to figure this out and he wasn't, so God picked me. Or we, we have somehow made the right decision and and decided to receive God's favor while he anxiously waited on the throne to see what we would do. We have in some way figured him out. We have in some fashion become desirable to God. 
when we realize that the only reason that we have received His grace is because He is God. And God says in His Word that He will shed His grace on whom He chooses to shed His grace upon. And Paul says we don't question that, we just receive it. When we realize that, then we, like Jonah, will cry out in total humility and total gratefulness, salvation belongs to our Lord. Amen? I can't think of a better time to prepare ourselves for being at the table of the Lord. Pastor Scott, amen.